Welcome, everybody, to the Gate Expectations podcast, where I bring in a weekly guest, talk all things Yu-Gi-Oh!, and get to know a little more about each person I talk to. This is the only you that is run by a full-fledged journalist such as myself. This is episode seven. If you haven't checked it out yet, you can check out earlier podcasts with guests like Penn God, Stephen Trifonoski, Jesse Cotton, and Team Samurai X1, and several others. My guest for this week is a big Yugi tuber with over 134,000 subscribers. He's a columnist for TCGplayer.com and self-proclaimed last remaining Altergeist player, according to his Twitter. It's Doug Zeef. Doug, thank you and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's cool to be here. Absolutely, man. And, you know, you've got a pretty extensive resume, not just <laughs> in the playing field, but, in, you know, in doing a whole lot of other things. There's a lot to unpack with you, and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, to, to begin off with all of this, like, you, you've got a big YouTube channel, first of all, 134,000 subscribers. Pretty big. What do you do on it? Uh, I really enjoy looking at Yu-Gi-Oh's history. I think that there's nothing wrong with like current discussions and stuff, but I think what really interests me is how to look at the past, how to look at what actually happened. Um, I've, I've used this example a lot, but Pot of Desires is like a cool card where I, I can make discussions talking about how the banishing top 10 cards of your deck doesn't really matter that much. And we know this because there's been so much data that like shows it's been really popular, especially before Ash Blossom came out when a lot of people were debating it. So I enjoy talking about instead of making so many like predictions about cards, even though I do occasionally do that, but I really enjoy looking at things that have already happened and then sort of analyze why they happened and how they happened and what it could mean for like future instances of cards like that. You know, like uh, I think one of the times where I made like an actual prediction was like, which is strike. I made a video about that not being good, but even that yeah. one, I was like a little nervous about being wrong about. I remember I, I made the video, I recorded it, I think, right before Savage Strike came out, but I actually waited until after the weekend of YCS Chicago, which was the first weekend that that set was legal, just in case I was very wrong about it. But, uh, I mean, it's been a year and a half and the card hasn't seen play. So I just enjoy looking at, like, what concretely happened, like the actual data points for what cards were successful and then talk about why they were or were not successful, as the case may be. Uh, I, now, I know you graduated from... Uh, from college, I think two years ago. There, it was yeah. there. Any, do you have like a history major or anything like that, or anything that kind of relates to? No, I have a uh, you know an English and communication degree. Yeah, I know <laughs> the two most <laughs> employable uh, uh, majors there. But no, I, I think I use uh, both of those pretty much in my daily life here. You know, communication especially, but English. You know, I think it's very important, especially because I do occasionally delve in the article writing, as you mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. I still I get a good kick out of that. I wish I could write more articles, but uh, they, a lot of times the article ideas can just be videos so i just do that yeah. but i still i've really been trying to make a, a point of it the last couple of months to at least try to write like one or two articles a month and it's been a lot of fun I, don't worry about you know be, having like a quote-unquote useless degree because <laughs> like i did a double major in journalism and philosophy so like the philosophy is probably not going to get me anywhere unless i go into law so don't you worry your head about yeah that. i don't worry about it too much um i have a lot of friends obviously that were in those majors and they seem to be doing pretty well but uh yeah i mean pe people joke about it when i t say that in like live streams and stuff when they ask about my yeah. uh, degree but no like i i think for sure like i use those in like my daily life for this
this particular work. And uh, a lot of the other big YouTubers, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! YouTubers specifically, actually also have college degrees that are sometimes related to Yu-Gi-Oh! specifically, or at least indirectly, which is always go cool. Well, I want to divulge more into that because I've seen you've been writing since 2012, at least for TCG. <laughs> yeah. Right? So uh, obviously, I, I'm going to assume that you didn't go to school for eight, eight years. Right, right. No, I've, yeah. uh, and even before that, actually, but it's on like a lost TCG player website that doesn't exist anymore. TCG player used to have this thing that was uh, anyone could write like blog posts and stuff. And I remember doing yeah. that. And uh, like in, I don't know, seventh or eighth grade. So they must have been pretty bad. But uh, I remember doing that and um, that site closed. So that so well, before the site closed, one of the things that they would do is that like once a week, they would pick like the best article from like everyone's submissions and put it on like what we now know is like the main TCG player site with like the, the real yep. writers and stuff. And uh, I remember mm -hmm. like one of my articles got chosen for there. And that was like huge. Cause like we got to submit our little <laughs> pictures and like they had, I mean, people actually <laughs> read that instead of just like other bloggers reading it. And uh, that was like what really got me inspired to keep writing. But then um, they closed that site. So they took two of us, uh, my friend Kelly and I, and then they put us as main article writers for the main site. And uh, we're both still on TCG Player to this day, over 10 years later. It's crazy. Have you seen an evolution in your writing since bef before you went for your English and communications degree uh, up until now, now that you finally have it within like the past two years? Yeah, and I think that um, <clears throat> it's weird because I, I took a pretty long break from writing uh, for TCG Player. I, I didn't uh, write an article for like a year and a half. That was when my YouTube channel was like first really blowing up. So like uh, yep. most of 2019, I did not write that many articles and uh, like half of 2018. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think going back to it, when I had taken that long break, I was like, I was like messaging my editor and I was like, okay, hopefully this isn't too rough and stuff. But then uh, he said it was still really good. He said he was surprised at how well I had transitioned into writing again. But I think for me, I look at all my videos as just like, I mean, as pretentious as it may sound, as video essay type videos, at least. Um, so I think that it, it does come naturally to me to just translate that into writing something instead of talking about it. I think I've noticed that. And I think that it's easy to see. Um, I know that Paul from Team APS, he's been doing some articles as well, and they're really, really uh, good. And I think it's for the same reason. I think when you spend the time making discussion videos, I think it does translate pretty well into. And I think that uh, so, I mean, throughout writing so many essays for school and then also making videos in a similar style, I think that my writing has got a lot better over the years. If, if I go back and I've done this on stream before, but if I go back and look at some of my earlier stuff when I was first, like I know the very first um, article I ever wrote for TCG player, I think I used like the word, gosh, what was, it? I think I used the word deck like four <laughs> oh, times no. in two sentences. And I like, before I knew how to diversify like what the words were and stuff because now I say like theme or strategy or archetype or whatever something else just to not have the same word over and over again uh, I mean there's plenty of other problems with those older articles as well but um yeah that was definitely something where when I look back and read like even the first year or two of articles yeah. they're just they're <laughs> so pretty a couple rough. things they're to rough. unpack and all of that uh, number one you know, as you mentioned, like you said, deck four times. That's like journalism in English 101. You do not mention like the same word multiple yeah. times in the same sentence as possible. You definitely don't want to do that. <laughs> and 
<laughs> and then yeah, number no, two to unpack, like I can completely relate to you in a sense of like just seeing the evolution within yourself after like you graduated and then going back to writing. Because like I started Yugi tubing, I think about ten years ago. I stopped within like the last six years. I tried to do like one episode of a podcast, wasn't the greatest thing ever. So after I graduated from from college, I came back, looked at myself, I'm like man, I could run a podcast now that I'm fully trained in it. I can see myself kind of evolve and get better and better as we go along every episode. And I'm sure that's kind of been the same experience for you ever since you came back to writing after your graduation. Yeah. And I think uh, what you say with YouTube is as true as well. I think a lot of people, when they first start a YouTube channel, think that, oh, my videos have to be perfect and stuff. But you can ask any big YouTuber, YouTuber, whatever, their first videos, like maybe even hundreds of first videos were really, really bad. And they know it. Like they're happy to talk about it. A lot of big channels. I know that. um, I don't know. Like I know Farfa's done this. I know Nim Nim has done this. Well, hi. I think uh, John has done this as well. And also like I've done it on some like really old stuff, but a lot of us will just hide many of the like <laughs> first videos on the channel just so they're not out there. Because like, I mean, it still happens like, and I've thought about it, but I have like a, a lot of old videos from, I don't know, like about the time that I was first writing articles and stuff like that. And I'll get comments on them like today from like six years ago. I'd say like, wow, this <laughs> audio quality is really bad. And what is this thumbnail? What is this title? And it's like, yeah, I mean, I had like a thousand subscribers when I made that. So I don't know what you expect <laughs> out of me. But uh, a lot of times when people click on something, even if it's just a couple of years old, which is a long time in Yu-Gi-Oh's yeah. history, there's a lot of changes in just a couple of years. But pretty much people seem to think that when they click something, it's it's when it was uploaded instead of looking at the, the yeah. date, which is, I think to me is kind of weird because one of the first things I look at when I open a video is when it was yep. uploaded because so much can change even just in a couple months for like Yu-Gi-Oh and card games. Especially. Yeah, and not, not only that, but we've seen like a technological change too within the past decade. Like if you look back to 2012, you know, not everybody was able to afford or own a smartphone then. So we had to use like digital cameras because that was one of the in things then to record videos. But now that we've all got smartphones, it's a lot easier to be able to like record video now. It, it, you know, production just gets a lot easier. I don't know if that's been your case or your experience but it certainly has been for me yeah no i think that that's like one of the cool things i always get messages from people that are looking to start a channel and say well what equipment do i like really need and it's like you have it it's your cell phone like i i am unashamed to say that i record i mean i don't really do a lot of like video videos besides pack yeah. openings and deck files but those are all done with my cell phone i i bought a camera i was not super impressed with it it was a fairly nice camera so i returned it and then i just didn't pick one up again maybe it's just me maybe it's the lighting who really knows but uh honestly like an iphone or any of the galaxies i mean those are all perfectly acceptable recording devices for most Yu-Gi-Oh videos obviously you see people go above above and beyond um when you get to the, the bigger level like nim nim and ruggles and obviously team aps all have really nice cameras as do sam and simo and stuff like that but uh in general like i think it's really cool having access to smartphones instead of like people having to go out and buy hundreds of dollars worth of like camcorder mm-hmm. equipment and stuff like that. So I think that cell phones are actually really important for the growth of smaller channels because it means that you don't have to spend any extra money to actually start producing. Videos. I definitely agree with you on, on that part because uh, just uh, about half a year ago, I'd say I just got myself the iPhone 11 Pro 
because I was set to go on a couple business trips for my my sports journalism. I was supposed to cover a couple of big events, and I wanted to use like the camera on this to be able to take pictures. So I can absolutely relate to you on, on that end. You know that I, just investing in a really good smartphone, and you know you have so much at your disposal to be able to make uh, to make whatever YouTube channel you want. I mean, the, my right now I'm using my phone for this podcast as we speak. <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, no phones are amazing. Phones are definitely really helpful in this. Like, I don't know what wave of Yugi tubers we're in. I think we've passed like the second wave because I think of like the the original like Yugi tubers like way back in the day, the greats that like started it all that were mostly just doing like either event deck profiles or like news with like poor yep. webcams and stuff. And it's come a long way since then. But I think we're in like the third wave right now of like Yugi tubing. Like anyone can do it. You don't really need to have any equipment. Like you already have Yu-Gi-Oh cards and you have you. That's all you really need. I mean, uh, House of Champs always tells people, and I think it's true that like personality is like the main thing that will sell a channel, will get mm -hmm. people interested. The rest of the stuff comes later. Like you don't need nice equipment. You don't need an expensive microphone or expensive computer. You can just do whatever. I mean, I got to like 6,000 subscribers using Windows <laughs> Movie Maker to talk about stuff like, which I mean, that was a disaster, but at least it, it got there. You know, it's not, it's more about your info. It's more about your personality than the equipment. I, I'm glad you said Windows Movie Maker because that's what I used to make all my videos way back when, when I started YouTubing because I didn't really want to buy any other software. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> so I'm really glad you mentioned that and knowing that I wasn't the only one who tried to make it big going with the Windows Movie Maker. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. I used to make my uh, thumbnails in Windows Movie Maker, which I know you're thinking, wait a second, how do you make thumbnails in Windows Movie Maker? But I would put like the the image of whatever I was yes. talking about, and then I would use the title in yep. the program to put like the title yep. across the image, and then I'd like screenshot that and upload it. So there's a bunch of videos for mine for like years, literal yep. years, where everything single thumbnail has black bars either on the top or bottom because like i was always just eyeballing it for like the picture for yep. the thumbnail and it's like man i should go back and change those or i should just delete those videos but it was, it was funny i got a, got a lot of mileage out of good old yeah, yeah me here. too although i i gonna say that i'm not using it now thankfully i actually invest i yeah i yeah, actually same. invested like legitimate money into like adobe premiere pro and fo photoshop for so now that everything i'm putting out is actually on like a real good editing software rather than like the the ghetto windows movie maker but the, that'll always have a place in my heart at least yeah no, that's good <laughs> Uh, uh, thankfully smartphones are like have been taking over and they've been just a, a wonder horse for at least anyone who wants to get into like the, the podcasting or like youtube business definitely yeah yeah i think it helps uh, give pretty much anyone a voice like if you have stuff you want to talk about you can yeah, i think that's absolutely great. that and I, i'm totally on board with you on that one so man look at your youtube channel e even more man I mean, you put up so much content in such a short span of time. So is this like your your main like primary source of income now is just being on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, it has been for a while. I uh, I started taking YouTubing seriously, I guess, in 2017. Um, John Moore, House of Champs, had messaged me a couple times and he said that I should consider like trying more because at that point i've been posting like once yep. every couple of weeks just sort of like a hobby thing i didn't even have monetized videos and um so i started posting videos like 
every single day um in february maybe late january like around february i started posting videos every single day and uh i got photoshopped for the first time a lot of those old thumbnails are pretty <laughs> yeah. bad but they're fun and uh <laughs> so i posted like every single day because my channel was already like um it already uh like I, I could monetize my channel like it already yep. met those requirements because i had i think at that point like five thousand subscribers or something so i can monetize it right away not that i was making hardly any money who really cares but so i was spending like a lot of time i was working a part-time job i was going to school and i was every single day uploading videos on like the worst laptop in, in the world basically it took forever i remember it would take like over an hour to render a 10-minute oh, video uh, that had no uh, moving parts which is just like <laughs> Oh man, but uh, yeah, so it was a grind. But then, in uh, so I did that for like several months, making very little money. But my channel was seeing growth, and um, that was cool. And I made a lot of more controversial videos back then. I still get comments on them because I, I mean, when you're a small channel, you got to do like, I mean, every small channel knows this, but you have to do something to stand out. You either have to like have like a really big personality, which I don't really have, especially back then. I was not as confident in speaking to a microphone. So I just went with, oh, controversial opinions, which I think a lot of new tubers tend to do as well. But uh, I mean, it, it kind of works. And um, but yeah, a lot of those videos, like get comments and people are like, this take is really weird. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it sure is. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. But um, yeah, and then I, I did that for several months uh, through October. So that's February through October, where I'm just doing it every single day and a part time job and personal relationships and college and all that stuff. And then in uh, October of 2017, well, I guess mm -hmm. September, but I had decided I had looked at my finances and said, you know, I'm making not enough for a full time job, but I am making significantly more than my part time yep. job which means that uh, I should be able to quit that. So in October 1st, 2017, quit my part-time job. And, um, you know, kind of, I basically told myself, you know, it's October, I'm graduating in May of next year. If it doesn't pick up by then, I'll just uh, quit or not not actually do it as my full-time job. You know, I'll have a college degree. I can just go do something else. And, uh, well, at least that's, I guess that's the idea, at least. But I'm not yep. sure if that would have happened. But, um by the uh by the time that uh may had rolled around i was doing pretty well i think that february if i remember correctly was the why nobody plays the egyptian god card video which was like huge and then a couple months later there was the why pot agreed is banned video which is still like the best video has ever done in like a two-day period that one went like I don't even know. I think he got half a million views oh, nice. in the first week, which has never wow. happened. Like even the, the Egyptian God card video, that one took a while to grow and it, it grew over time. But the pot agreed one, that thing must've just got picked up by the algorithm. Cause that was the most amount of views I've ever seen in like a one week span for me. And it probably will be, I don't think yeah. that'll ever happen again. But uh, so I was, I was doing pretty good by the time that graduation happened. So I said, okay, I'll keep doing this um just to see like if it'll work and i think that a lot of people had done that i know that simo has talked about in the past that you know he had been doing it during college and then he graduated and said you know i think i'm gonna do this full time and i think that's the way to do it i don't think the way to do it is to like when you get out of college if you're not making enough money for to actually have it sustain you to just say you know i'm gonna go for it i mean i, I guess if you want to do that you can but i was already i think most of the big tubers that after college continued to make youtube videos full-time were already in a position where it was making as much as like a full-time job that they would be taking if they were doing something else so that was uh 
I don't know, two and a half, not two and a half years ago, but two years and a couple months ago. And uh, it's been going well, you see that since. a lot of you YouTubers and, and just it's such yourself and like Simo, like uh, Triff and Sam, you know, th- there's some sort of like big hook or persona that they have behind their channels like you see see like sam and you see triff they've got these like huge like outgoing personalities like mainly positive like they're kind of and like Triff's a little bit more louder than sam sam's a little bit more uh a little bit more emotional his but still relatively positive where you've got the more like the historic sense of it and some controversial opinions and then simo is just just kind of like the way he presents himself in front of the camera is just his tone of voice. Like everyone's got their own little hook. And then mine, for instance, is like I'm trying to bring like a Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast, which is done by like a real journalist. Like I graduated from journalism school and like I'm doing this legitimately. And that's I'm trying to put like a journalistic standpoint on, on Yu-Gi-Oh!, which is my kind of hook. So like would you say that you've got another kind of hook for your YouTube channel at all? Um, no, I think you pretty much got it. I think that there for every single person, I mean, this always happens on like those Reddit threads where it's like, oh, what's your least yeah. and uh, most favorite YouTubers, which usually turns into like who your least favorite ones are. But for every single comment out there that says like X person is too loud or Y person is too annoying, there's another comment that says like I'm too not loud, I'm too quiet, stuff like that. So I think that the beauty of YouTube just in general, but also YouTubing is that no matter what type of video you're trying to find, someone is probably making what you're looking for. And not everyone has to like every single channel. Actually, it shouldn't be that way. Not everyone should like every single channel. You have your own information you want. Maybe you're more casual, maybe you're more competitive. Maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's more about budget. Maybe it's more about presentation. Maybe it's more about you like deck profiles or you like you get pro replays or you don't like those things and i think that that's what a lot of people might miss i've posted about this before but i feel like there's a lot of people that think that just because they don't like something means that something is bad which i always thought was a weird take because i don't know if someone's like i mean sam gets like a lot of hate which is really sad he's such a good guy i think he posts content but uh you'll see so many comments that are like man this guy's just like the worst youtuber and it's like uh he's getting crazy views he's getting lots of interaction he has three hundred thousand subscribers as of yesterday which is really exciting sent him a couple texts but uh it's like just because you don't like him doesn't mean that he's a bad youtuber he's huge and he and he has so many fans and he, he really does put his heart and soul into his videos and i think that's like a really important distinction to make And I think that when I was just starting out in YouTubing, like seriously, like in 2017, I thought Mm -hmm. that way as well. I think there were big, bigger channels that I looked at and said, you know, I don't really think their content is that good. I think I should have as many subs as them. But then you grow a little bit and you realize, oh, it's just different Mm -hmm. people for different audiences. And that's perfectly fine. Of course, there's a lot of overlap. (laughs) We're all talking about Yu-Gi-Oh! But it's perfectly fine to enjoy one channel and not enjoy another channel even if both channels are equally mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with you on with that, that one. I mean, I've had some of my local friends say that they're actually like not into this podcast or it's, it's not their thing, but then I get, uh, you know, comments from people I barely know of that tell me that they love this podcast. And they love hearing about it. So, you know, I, I'm not going to, you can't let uh, definitely like a few naysayers or a few people who just aren't into it, you know, like ruin you because, you know, the positive eventually is going to outweigh the negative unless somehow like you're really terrible for some stupid reason. You have to learn how to really find the constructive criticism in the comment section, which can be really tough because YouTube comments can be all over the place. 
And um, I think that is very important, like actually realizing what is constructive. And then the example that I was giving was that I got a lot of comments for a while that my intros were too long. I would like give background information for two to three minutes. So I really made a point in 2019 and 2020, especially to try to keep my intros as close to like one minute or less as popular. And I think that overall it actually has increased watch time because people said that they were sick of hearing so much background information every single video. So now I've tried to just jump right into the discussions like a minute into the video and just give as little background information as possible. But like just give the most important information i think that's been uh pretty good but you have to like learn how to separate that from people just saying like oh you sound boring and while i will agree that over time i've gotten better at speaking and some of those early videos were boring at some point i just accepted like some people out there are, are always going to think i talk boring nothing i can do about it move on that's not super constructive and i can look at the views and watch time and stuff and know that enough people are still interested in hearing what i have to say so i realized that maybe that's not something i have to worry about changing not every big youtuber has to be very loud not that there's anything wrong with being loud but not all youtubers have to be the exact same person if that makes sense yeah, and I, I was thinking that you can't take like one comment too much to heart because that potential opinion could be just like a, just like a fringe comment that maybe not a lot of people share. I mean, you want to go with uh, you know the majority of it, take a look at it, and and see if what the majority are saying is is actually true or not. I mean, I'm not going to say that the majority is always right. Right. It usually, usually leans towards something or at least like there's a pattern being recognized when you look at the majority though that's actually a perfect uh thing to say yeah because one of the things that people can get caught up on let's say you have a video with 10,000 views and the top comment is wow this is the worst video you've ever seen and only has a hundred likes well it's a top comment that sucks that the top comment is negative but it only has a hundred likes out of the 10,000 people that watched the video the yeah. vast majority of watchers are going to be silent they're never going to comment they're never going to like mm -hmm. they just watch the video enjoy the video and go on with their day so it's important yeah. although i can't say there's been too many videos of mine where the top comment or the top several comments are all like really negative. I don't think that mm -hmm. really happens anymore. Maybe like on the God card video, but even that one, I don't think so. I think the top comments in that one are all jokes and stuff. But uh, I think it's really important to know that like, even if like there is a top comment that is negative, that has a lot of likes, it doesn't reflect the majority of viewers that are watching and enjoying the content. I, I always think that the, the best sort of measure for how people are actually feeling about the video is the views is the like to dislike <laughs> ratio is stuff like that not so much one top ranked comment i guess yeah because you have to watch out for this the silent majority because not everybody who watches videos is going to comment right so that's what like the, that's what the views are for to show that people are actually p paying attention to it so, you know the, again like you got to have to have a bit of thick skin when you get into yeah. this kind of business because you know there's there's going to be some kind of hater or at least some person who's not going to be quite fond of your content that's gonna to happen to everybody yeah i feel like uh any channel over i don't even know when i think a lot of people say like i know a lot of people think i don't have a thick skin i get that a lot and i think they don't quite realize the degree of comments that youtubers get I know that like pretty much all my friends that are above 30k subscribers have had every aspect of their personal uh, personality of their physique all ripped apart by like tons of commenters on a daily basis. That's a lot of interaction that most people aren't getting. And that is just part of the job. We understand that. But uh, I think a lot of people when they hear 
uh, especially like really, really big YouTubers out of the YouTube escape talk about negative comments or mental health in this industry. They're just like, well, you're rich. You're making a lot of money. You have a ton of fans. What are you talking about? Not understanding what getting like hundreds of comments, not that any YouTubers getting this, but not understanding getting hundreds or thousands of comments about like your most uh, like thing that you're most afraid about of yourself, you know, like your biggest downfall. But uh, it is important also on the other side of the coin to uh, not get caught in the echo chamber of your own fans. I've uh, I've <laughs> noticed this as well, especially with channels that are maybe struggling and they post an update video and say, I don't really know how to improve. And on the update video, all the comments are like, just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing great, stuff like that. But the views are down and that go kind of goes back to the majority of fans being silent watchers people aren't gonna necessarily comment and tell you what they're what you're doing wrong or what they think you're doing wrong they're just gonna stop watching and they're just gonna go watch someone else and it's really important if you are trying to take youtubing seriously as like your real job to really mm -hmm. notice the silent majority of viewers and do what they want or try to uh appease them in some way to actually get them to continue watching the videos because not everyone is going to tell you hey i'm unsubscribing because of x y and z they're just going to leave mm -hmm. and it's really hard to be like very transparent with with your fan base when you when you become big because you can't respond to every single comment that that comes out there like i'm sure like if you listen to like the the, the joe rogan podcast or, yeah. or jordan peterson's podcast for for example that they can't respond to every single person it's huge. And I'm sure that's also kind of the same way with Yu-Gi-Oh, except maybe to a smaller scale. But even then, like some, a lot of YouTubers would get like a ton of comments and it's like, it would take all day and like for several days on end just to be able to get back to everybody. Yeah. I think we had calculated it on one older live stream. We had done like, if I spent 30 seconds responding to every comment that I would have to work eight hours every single day to respond to all of them. <laughs> and um, I probably wasn't, there. it was probably like a minute or something. I'm not sure, but like, yeah, there's no way to keep up. And I think I, I keep up better than most people would maybe think because mm -hmm. uh, when you look at like your channel comments, it just shows like in chronological order of when they were commented on, not on like yep. which video it was. So people will comment mm -hmm. on like five-year-old videos and I'll, I'll reply. Like I'll talk to like, I love having, I love having dialogues with, commenters i think that's so much fun like having an open conversation especially on more controversial topics and i think that tons of people like they're always surprised like when i comment on like a two-year-old video or one-year-old video like immediately when they comment but you know I, I think it's really important to know to try to like get the pulse of like what's going on with people watching videos even older videos just to understand where i can improve upon where i did good stuff like that and i think people want transparency from who they're talking to because they, they want to be heard. They want their voices known and they, and of course they want your product to improve in a sense. I mean, the heart's in the yeah. right place. At least I, I would think so anyhow. And, you know, I try to be transparent as much as I possibly can, but you know, I don't always respond to every single Facebook comment that I get on my Facebook. And I'm sure that's probably the same on your end as well, even though that's just Facebook. Yeah, no, I had to, uh, I had to turn off my Facebook, fan page messages i didn't really use that page in a while but i i still got messages and i just couldn't keep up with them i i try to i don't know i really try to keep up with the messages especially on twitter now because facebook's closed but it's it's hard like there's a lot of messages a lot of requests a lot of people i think most people mean well they just want deck help or advice on certain card choices but i try to 
honestly, like when I see messages, I, I try to keep track of what they're asking and then see if mm -hmm. enough people ask the same or similar questions. Maybe I can make a video talking about that to, to answer those without like having to answer every single individual question. Yeah. And, and again, just being able to respond to every single person that you can, it, it's tough enough as it is. So, I mean, uh, I'm not trying to like shoot down any of the fans who put a comment in because they're also greatly appreciated, but just understand that we just can't get to every single one. Well, maybe I can, cause I'm still kind of starting out small right now, but at least for the bigger YouTubers and whatnot, it, it gets tough and it takes a lot of time out of the day, especially since I'm, I'm sure yourself, you have your, like your own personal life that you would like to attend to and deal with as well. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I think that's one of the reasons that the, I don't even know what it's called, like loving comments or hearting comments. I think that was yeah. like a really good addition by YouTube because it means that the content creator can highlight a couple messages that they feel that they want the person to know, Hey, I saw this. I'm not going to like pin it or anything, but just, Hey, I yeah. saw this. Hey, I appreciated the efforts, stuff like that. And then other people can see that comment. And I think that's like a really cool addition that they made instead of having to reply to like every single comment saying, I saw this. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you can just throw it a heart and then they know. Scraping out about 10 seconds per comment makes a big deal when you can just simply heart it. I'm yeah. sure it takes, it, it's a lot of time saved when you think about combining everything together. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And speaking of personal life, I, I, I just, I found out that you got, uh, you just got engaged this past March. Congrats, yeah. Yeah. Right before the, the whole world closed down pretty much <laughs> like one week right. before. Right. Yeah. Cause I remember it happened like mid March. That's when I believe Canada and the States started to go into, into lockdown. Yep. And, and I, I'm seeing that the March 8th was the, the day you got engaged. Yep. Yeah. One week later on Monday, it was, everything was closed. Yeah. I, but it's also been like a big year for you as well in, in terms of Yu-Gi-Oh as well, because uh, as I mentioned at the very start of the podcast, you say that you're the only Ultra Guys <laughs> player that's left, and we've yeah. seen you talk uh, two big events um, with Ultra Guys when Multifaker was at one. You were top four at the UDS Invitational, and you came top 32 at Portland. So yep. uh, let's uh, run through why you decided to keep going with Ultra Geist for, for I think, a year, and no, yeah. even while Multifaker was on. I know you made a video about it, but uh, mm. for those who haven't watched it yet, why don't you like, run us through uh, your thoughts on running Ultra Geist in the past year? Okay, so the reason I picked up Altergeist when the Multifaker went to one was simple math. Because I was playing, uh, I was playing Salmon Greats at the time. I played Salmon Greats at a regional, a YCS, and then Nats. Even I played Salmon Greats at Nats, yeah. and uh, like Salmon Greats, they lost two of their cards. So like they lost four cards total. They lost two Circle, two Gazelle. Altergeist only lost two Multifakers. So <laughs> one deck lost four cards. One deck lost two cards. I just went with the one that lost two cards. I uh, honestly, I was pretty done with Altergeist at that point. I did not think, as I say, every ban list, but I really mean it. Like, I never think I'm going to play that deck again because it, it does have so many issues, like all trap decks do. I mean, you can only go second against combo decks so many times before you just want to play something that actually can go second. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was fun. Like, and I think that that was really important for me. That was my first premier top i topped like a couple arg events i guess like the arg invitational and an arg circuit series and i got in like a regional a couple regional tops but that was like the first big premier top like the uds mm -hmm. one of the hardest events one of the longest events and i think most people know that i had to play yeah. against a lot of people that had been to worlds or won ycs's stuff like that it was a very hard mm -hmm. tournament and I don't know, like I, I misplayed in top four and I think I could have probably won that match if I would have. Well, it wasn't really a misplay. It's playing around like a one of in a 60 card deck. But I I'll yeah. always think about I think I could have won that match if I just would have played it like a little bit differently, a little bit safer. And I, I didn't, which kind of sucked. 
But mm-hmm. uh, and, and I feel like I would have had a good matchup in the finals, but it's okay. I'm over it. But then the next weekend, which was really important to me as well, um, the next weekend I, I topped Portland, which uh, <laughs> was important because when I when I topped the yes, I mostly saw like really positive comments, but I saw a couple of people saying like, oh, it must be a fluke, which does happen. Certainly does happen. Does. But so I, I thought it was really important to top Portland and um, make sure that it wasn't a fluke. And then like a, a month later, or not a month later, but a little while later, I got second at a Detroit regional after a new ban list. So I, I really do yep. enjoy I'll alter. If there's ever a deck that I want to have like the most success with, it's always going to be alter guys. That was a really special couple months for me. And there was a lot of buzz around you making it that far with Altergeist because everyone thought that the deck would be dead at pretty that much. Point yeah, it's funny to think about now because like like Altergeist ended up getting played like a lot more after that. But yeah. yeah, even after the UDS top, like people still thought it was dead. People still thought. I mean, I think I was only Altergeist at the UDS that topped, and I think there were two at Portland or one other besides me. But like eventually, people figured out it was actually like pretty good but especially at that time like people thought it was just completely dead but uh, one multi-figure that's fine that's okay <laughs> well what people seem to forget is that when you start to remove some stuff out of taken out of a deck like new things can start to come into place i mean for example when you talked with the uh, at indianapolis like you incorporated sangan into your deck mm-hmm which which was completely different now. And then not too much of like when Salomon Grace, when Gazelle started going down, then people started running triple flame buffalo. Like it's these inclusions in, like people seem to forget that. Like other stuff can kind of take its place and even do the job and sometimes even better. Yeah, and I think that like Orcus is a good example too, where the whole deck yeah. was just like mermaid focused for so long, like format after format after format. And then mermaid yeah. got banned and it, it still worked like just fine. Like some might even say that the the final variant of Orcus, I mean it's not final, it's still playing, but the final harp variant of Orcus with Skystrike mm-hmm. Orcus was like the best, mm-hmm. most consistent, most powerful version of Orcus. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe it wasn't in comparison to like the very first iteration where Mermaid was at its best and you were like as a thought comboing your opponent and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, the deck continued to be good after like five cards got banned. So who would have guessed it? Yeah, exactly that. Like you incorporate a, a new, a new like little archetype into it and not to mention like more cards come out. I mean, like I, I saw more Mascar- IP Mascarena in the last part of Orcus than I did before like Mermaid came out. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, because because I think like to, like topologic Zeroboros was was more prevalent then like and uh, and topologic uh, Bonner was out like you know I I just saw so like a completely different strategy when I ran Orcus like pre and post Mermaid. Yeah, and now it's like a, a Union Carrier deck and a Needle Fiber deck. It just adapts so well. The, the core Orcus cards, like especially the extra deck monsters, are just so strong and so like universally good in so many situations, setting up your board at breaking boards at everything, that it's just it's really hard to truly hit Orcus into the ground. I guess they were kind of struggling before Gearsu came out, and even now they're kind of a rogue deck, but they kind of reminded me of like Mermails, where they're, they have such a core lineup as, of cards that they just seem to be good pretty much no matter what, at least as like a, a rogue level strategy. You know, and I found Mermails really, really weird in the sense that like their the whole deck philosophy completely changed on a dime. Like before they could be control with uh, with 
with combo and OTK capabilities, but now it's starting to turn into like a big glass cannon and it, it, it finishes off with like a biscale to try to negate your spell. It's completely different in the way it plays. And we've kind of seen like the evolution of how like Orcus has been being played all over the place now. And the mirror match, I gotta tell you, is one of the biggest chess matches I've ever had to play. Yeah, no, there's a lot of interactions going around there. And it's, I like decks like that though. I think that's one of the cool things about Yu Gi Oh! not having set rotation is that. You have decks like Mermails, Burning Abyss, Lightsworn, uh, even the random rogue decks, but it, especially those ones that actually have topped a lot. And uh, you just have them like show up at competitions every once in a while, maybe not every YCS, but you know, like probably every other YCS, every three YCS is that just like takes some players by surprise, you know? And it, I think that's really cool about not having set rotation, always having access to like all the cards in the game except for the ban list, basically. Yeah, exactly that, that you don't have, like, one set style to play a certain deck. Like, you can play a deck with different, like, completely different styles. Even if they're the same deck, I, I find, it, it's up to the player on how they decide they want to play that deck. And Burning Abyss, I think, is one of the best examples of that. I don't know how many variants we've seen. We've seen, like, Trapless versions. We've seen Monster Mash versions. We've seen, like, full Trapway versions of Burning Abyss all over the place. And especially when Lynx came out, they came back again. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But that's, like... I don't know. That's like one of the things that I love about Yu-Gi-Oh so much. It's really cool. Yeah, it's definitely a unique thing too, and it's it's kind of funny to get a, like a hit of nostalgia when you see uh, an old deck kind of get rehashed, but like play completely different from how it was before. Because you think, oh yeah, I know all these effects, but like, but what about the new things that get incorporated into it? I mean, when Burning Abyss was uh, made its newest incarnation, we saw Orbital Highlander come out, like BLS come out, and it, it got really crazy. And people didn't really care for setting out Beatrice's effect because they usually use this Link material for one yeah. thing. No, it's cool. I mean, today's meta is tomorrow's uh, rogue. That's always what I've said. <laughs> that's a that's a good way to put it. You know, yeah. I, I like I like that. <laughs> you know, you being on this. Uh, being on the big circuit lately, you've also been on the other side of the table, and I don't mean judging that. You also did, uh, you also did a couple. F you did some feature matches for two events. You did for the 150th uh, event in Columbus, and then you did uh, YCS Toronto 2015. Yeah, I think I had a. Uh... Four. I think I did two YCS Toronto's and then those two as well. Or I'm just trying. I just can't remember because one fiftieth was Columbus. Yeah, yeah. I think it was three total. I think it was Toronto and then Columbus and then a Toronto. And um, yeah, that was really fun. Like it was. That was like one of the area. One of the times that I could really stretch my English major legs. That was yeah. really cool. I got to work with my editor in person at both the Toronto ones. Jason, who's I've known forever and is such a great guy, such a big friend of mine. And uh, that was like really exciting. A lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, and a lot goes into feature match articles. And I know they don't really do them too much anymore. I guess they still. Yep. Do well, I mean, there's no events right now, but they don't. I mean, obviously, people want live streams and stuff, but mm -hmm. I don't know. I know people really like live streams, and not everyone's a fan of the the feature match articles. But I actually really like the feature match articles. I've I've always read them. It was a, a big dream of mine to uh, work on feature matches, and that was really fun. Mm -hmm. I got to meet a lot of nice people at Konami um, back then that I, I still talk to today, and I got to make a lot of friends. So it was a mm -hmm. cool experience. Yeah, big shout out to Jason Grabermeyer. Love that, man. And yeah. he's also given me uh, a similar experience with YouTube. So before when uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Konami decided to like do all the streaming and when they wrote feature matches for it, uh, there was a website, I, you may remember, it, it used to be called metagame.com. Of course, and, yeah. Yeah, and Jason would also write for that too. And he helped me get into that, that site. I did feature matches for that website as well. And again, yeah, a lot of pressure when you do those things, because you have to sometimes kind of slow the game down a little bit. Say, like, okay, hold on a sec. Let me, let me catch up and let me like get all this down. 
Yeah. And, I, I'm, and I'm sure it's a little bit tougher for you because, you know, about eight years ago, maybe Yu-Gi-Oh wasn't as fast. And now we are seeing these first turn boards come up. So you're almost writing like a big little essay just on somebody's first move. Yeah, I know that one of those events was uh, Shadal's and Burning Abyss. And it's like, think about how much you have to write just when a Shadal fusion is activated, right? So Shadal <laughs> fusion is activated. It sends two different monsters that have graveyard effects. They summon Construct, which sends something which has a graveyard effect. You have to write every single piece of that. And you'll see nowadays, I don't know how often I did it, but it is a, a good way um, that you can keep up with that kind of stuff is that you'll see people when it gets really crazy they'll just mm -hmm. like write okay and then a whole bunch of plays happen and here's what the ending board was and it's just because yeah. you can only ask so many times hey can you slow down hey can you announce your plays that's always the yeah. funny part i remember is that you would ask people uh can you please announce all of your plays like every time you activated a card and then they'll do that for the first like five minutes of the game and then they just kind of mm -hmm. stop because i mean <laughs> people aren't used to playing Yu-Gi-Oh that way where you're announcing they every are. card name but it's uh yeah. it's it's tough being a feature match writer it was fun but it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of work it, it is we, and, and that and i had the same experience too when i was writing for metagame.com is that like, they would follow for the first five minutes yeah it would and then they'd just forget and they would just go off and sometimes i'd have to like okay guys just you just like slow down just a bit remember just to announce your place because back then you wouldn't really like announce your standby phase now as a, as a parent to now yeah not nearly as many fast effects and stuff like yeah, that everybody's calling their phases everybody's doing it now and i remember i would always used to call battle phase before just to try to bait out uh threatening roars because like people know that if you uh, declare an attack and then you activate threatening roar that attack still goes right. through so that's why I always I started saying battle phase just to make sure it's like, are you going to play threatening roar or not? Because if not, I'm going to make the attack. And then people flip threatening roar and think, oh, well, that attack shouldn't go through. I'm like, yes, it does. It happens. And, and, then, and now it's started to evolve to every single phase gets called out to make sure that there's like no, no complications or anything like that. Or to say, or like to have a fallback to say, well, I did declare my phases kind of thing. Right. Or think of Nibiru. Every single summon you make after the fifth summon, <laughs> you have to ask, do you have like a response? Do you want to do anything? And it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of annoying. But it is important to like maintain the game state. You don't want to accidentally extra deck summon something and your opponent say oh actually i had nibiru like you want to give them the opportunity you don't want to just rush through your plays and try to make it so they can't nibiru you it's like no you have to make sure that they don't have a response while you're doing plays yeah exactly that and i think uh gores the emissary of darkness was also one of those cards that would prevent people from saying all right i'm just, like treat it like magic like, just have all their monsters attack at once no you've got to attack one at a time yeah now, that was the yeah. classic one when you have an open board and you just say, I attack for a game. And it's like, I think in some cases they ruled it that whoever was getting attacked got to pick the attack order if the other person didn't say it. So you would just be like, your highest monster attacked first. I'll summon cards. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I did it. And I remember at one Canadian Nationals when it happened, like they had to, they enforced it that way or said, do not like attack all at once or like we'll, we'll give you like a warning we'll give you some kind of penalty for yeah. it so like, i i really took that to heart because i didn't want any kind of complications happening i told my opponents like you know don't attack all at once please attack one at a time and even if i didn't have gores in my hand i would tell people i'm sorry who attacked first 
just to make people to kind of think and maybe get a little paranoid so that they're to think, okay, maybe I don't want to tackle the next monster. It's it doesn't work a whole lot, but it's worked at least once. It's worked a couple times. Yeah, I think it's just like important to keep a consistent level of play, like to give people opportunities to activate cards and, and all that stuff to make sure that before you change phases, your opponent doesn't have a response. I, I suppose not everyone's this way, but I think that most players don't want to win unfairly in terms of like breaking the rules. I think that yeah. people like spending the time making sure their deck is good making sure that they know their combos and then beating their opponent that way even if their combos are unfair they're not trying to like cheat the system and like get people and shark them and stuff i think it's just about keeping a consistent level of play across the board and i've been enjoying that kind of evolution that we're seeing from Yu-Gi-Oh! now that everyone's declaring the faces and making sure that you know we're getting in a fair opportunity to be able to respond to it because there's so much interaction now with your opponent even when it's not your turn and even when it's the first turn because hand traps keep looming i mean that was one of my favorite parts of when i got into Yu-Gi-Oh! is the complete interaction you can have with your opponent with trap cards i thought trap cards were so awesome when i first heard about Yu-Gi-Oh! before i even started playing the game that was a big thing that got me into the game because i thought that was so fun i love the interaction unlike pokemon where you just watch your opponent play their turn the pokemon trading card game and you have to wait till their turn's done and then you make your move and you just watch and your opponent just watches you i love the interaction yeah no i i play a lot of hearthstone and uh that's always like one of the things that gets me is like anytime that like some degenerate combo is happening that i had literally no way of stopping i was just thinking you know if i just had effect veiler this would all change it would just be yeah. so much better <laughs> obviously that game is set up differently but it is kind of weird to think about how much trap cards and hand traps interaction on your opponent's turn which is something that some players complain about you know no one likes their stuff getting negated but when you play a game that has no possibility for interaction on the opponent's turn it, it becomes pretty apparent when they're doing something and it's like you know i feel like i should have a way to stop this <laughs> other than like yeah. preemptively stopping it or trying to break it once it happens i feel like there should be a way to interact with them while they're doing their combo i don't know and i feel like that's also just a major part of skill development in in duelists when you get interrupted when when you you have to learn how to play through that yeah i think that's a big thing it's like mike tyson had a great quote and he said everybody has a plan until you get punched and that's kind of the thing in Yu-Gi-Oh. like you, you can set up a big board all you want that's easy but what happens you know why when you get interrupted or what happens for subsequent turns afterwards when you don't have like a great game state in front of you like can you can you play the grind game afterwards yeah i think a lot of people even in combo decks don't realize how much it how important it is to know what's going to happen on your second turn after you make the big board like even yeah. if your opponent doesn't break your board, they're probably going to put up like some cards of their own. They're not just going to pass usually. I mean, sometimes you make a board that's unbreakable and they just pass and you just win the game. But in general, like a lot of times your board gets half broken or they set up their own board and then you have to deal with the cards. It's pretty important. I think that's what separates like the, the great players from just the good players. I think knowing how to play those extra turns, especially in like really high stress situations is like really, really key to success in Yu-Gi-Oh! Especially at a, uh, like regionals and YCSs and bigger events, which we don't have right now. But when we do have those, um, a lot of people, the first time that they're like the last person so that's still playing a match are not ready for like 20 spectators watching them and they start misplaying. And you just have to learn how to be comfortable with that because you might not be a named player, but if you're the last people playing in the room or you're playing against a named player, you might have a lot of spectators. Yeah. You have to know how to uh, not get too like confused about that or too like flustered from that happening. 
Yeah, and that's that's just the nature of how Yu-Gi-Oh is. Like, you're going to have some people surround your table, whether you're highly known or not, because in some way, shape, or form, like, if you're, again, as you mentioned, you're the last one, you're playing a big player, or you're on a feature match, you're going to have some kind of spectators around you. Obviously, it's not going to happen every single match, but it can happen at some point, and I've seen people just absolutely break down when that happens, even in side events as well. Like, you get people watching, like, the finals of side events. That happens, too. And, and even at locals, I, you get that as well when you're the last table. So, like, pressure, being able to overcome pressure, I think, is a big factor in this game. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Even even at locals, usually the last table that's playing is going to have spectators. Now, you might feel a little bit more comfortable because there are people you know, possibly, if you go to the yep. locals often. But still, it's good to know what it's like having people watch you while you play and being prepared for that mm-hmm. when it actually happens. Because if that's happening at like a bigger event, it might mean that that's a really important match that you need to not lose. Mm-hmm. And then go, going back to how we said, you know, dealing with like the second turn and whatnot, I, you know, mo- majority of the time we are seeing games and within like the first five turns. Right. But it, it didn't used to be that way, though, like about a decade ago, like we would get like 10, 15, 20 game turns and whatnot. And I think a lot of the newer players right now, like I kind of have that struggle. Like, uh, I'll give you an ad- anecdote. For example, um, when Yu-Gi-Oh days would happen, we would play extru- you'd play like, structure deck duels. Right. You would have those, but those games aren't designed to be done. Like have the game done in two to three turns. You're meant to actually really grind and have a long drawn out game. And I see a lot of the players that have trouble being able to grind, like kind of get exposed because I see a lot of overextension. I see a lot of people making plays that they sh- they shouldn't be doing, and that's kind of something you can kind of do in this format because it's more of a put everything on the table and see if you can get stopped. But you you would get horrifically punished by great players if you did that back in the day at, at wrong times. Yeah, and I think that this is what really sets apart people in mirror matches specifically, especially when it's like, uh, a deck that can grind forever, like Eldritch, resource management is everything. When when both players have access to almost any card in their deck at any point, like Eldritch do, uh, it's very important to know, okay, what do I do? What do I, what am I willing to commit to the board? What do I save for later on? All that mm-hmm. stuff is very important. Yeah, usually mirror matches have like certain blowout cards, but mm-hmm. I, I definitely seen some Eldritch mirror matches go into like turn five, past turn five, up to turn 10, just because they're grinding so much, especially when people weren't playing like the big combo variants that we see nowadays. And I think yeah. that, uh, yeah, if everyone was playing the same deck or a variant of the same deck, you want to know how, what happens when like we're both low on resources. How do you manage what you're actually doing correctly to win the match? And I find that that happens more commonly with mirror matches because, uh, again, like you kind of know each other's plays and you have to like be able to siphon through everything, and and it gets tricky. Like for example, like I think Necros is one of the, like the most resource managing like mirror matches in, in all of Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, for because sure. Every- Every single thing you have to do is all about resources. If you're down behind one card the entire game, you're probably losing. Even if and whoever gets trished, gets that's it. You're out of the game. Nine times out of ten, whoever gets trished, the game is over. Yeah, pretty much. That was always the Necroz thing. It was like playing chicken. Like, how many cards can you commit to the board that you have to like break your own board in main phase two, and then your opponent tries to do the same thing, and you got to make sure they're not OTKing you because now you know no monsters. You got to make sure you have Valk or a way to play around cards like that. So. Yeah, because yeah, because Necros then had the ability to OTK as well. So I thought that was like one of the most meticulous chess matches in, in all of Yu-Gi-Oh. 
and it, it's it's a tough mirror match. I tell you, even post uh, like post Jin, yeah, like post Jin, like that was it was crazy. And and sp- speaking of which, this was probably our first interaction that we ever had with each other. Uh, you did one of my feature matches, yeah, back in the day. <laughs> back in the day, I don't know how well you remember that feature match. You, uh, uh, it was against Joe Bogley. I my guess is you picked us because it was more for oh, Joe. He was playing he Cosmos, was the- right? Yeah, he was playing Cosmos, and not yeah. to mention he's a world's competitor as well. So I, I don't take any offense that you know you didn't pick me because it was me. You picked him for more of his well, Joe. It's completely understandable. that I don't know if, they, if it's still this way, but for the longest time, feature matches like were we only got the pairings like I don't know a couple seconds, maybe thirty seconds earlier than like yep. they went up, and you have to like make the decision in like two seconds how to like which person you're featuring so the judge can go grab them before the match starts so like yep. people will say well why didn't you grab this matchup and stuff it's like we don't know i mean like i said i wrote feature matches five years ago but at the time we had no idea what the matchups were going to be until basically they were being posted so yep. like, what how it would work is you would like watch a couple players that had like more interesting decks and see how they were doing you would get people that were like you would say okay they're they're five one right now We'll check them out if they're going into the next round and they're still like 5-1. Well, then they would be 6-1. Now we'll grab them. And then sometimes they go X-2 and it's like, okay, now they're just lost because they're like 100 tables down from where they were. So who really knows? It's hard. I don't know. That's why like a lot of times when there's like a a feature match that maybe could have been two like named players. I mean, there's always named players playing, but like two really big players. uh, And you ask like, why didn't that happen? It's like, well, you don't know the matchups until like they're happening. (laughs) Yeah, it, it, exactly that. And when I was doing Feature Master with Jason, we'd always have our eyes out on a couple players just to see it, like how well they're doing. And if they're still doing well and they got like this really interesting deck, then of course we're going to feature them. You know, it's it's so there's so many variables involved in selecting who's going to be part of the feature match. So I, I completely understand it because I've been on your side of the table as well. And you know, Cosmo at that event was was relatively new. I mean, Forerunner was their biggest monster right. at the time, just to, <laughs> just to show how big Cosmos were. And I actually found out what that when I was playing against Joe, I found out that he was playing Cosmo, so I kind of had an idea. I did play only one other Cosmo player earlier that day, so at least I knew what to do. I actually had no idea what Cosmos did before, like going into that day, and, and lucky enough, I was able to beat both my Cosmo matchups. And yeah, th- thanks, by the way, for picking me, because it actually made me look good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I think we featured like one, I know Jarrell Winston was playing Cosmo at that event as well. He's playing like a slightly different variant, but I think we featured him as well. Yeah. And yeah, again, like Cosmos with the new deck. So we, of course, people want to see like new stuff happen on future matches, or at least on being on the writer's sense. Like I want to feature new decks. Yeah, you always are trying to feature like whatever is the latest and greatest. Because like at the end of the day, especially with like an unproven archetype, it might not top. So you know that by top thirty-two, you're going to have whatever is the meta matchups, you know that you're going to have the named players that topped the event. So earlier on, you want to try to get the decks that are maybe a little bit more unproven, just so that you know that like if they don't do well later in the tournament, you at least had them in the earlier rounds. I think you can even still see that with like current YCSs, especially for like the uh, the live stream matches. Like yeah. the earlier rounds, I would say rounds one and two especially, but maybe even round three sometimes, you'll mm-hmm. see maybe not named players so often, but just like yeah. interesting decks just so that they actually have a chance to get featured, which is fine. Maybe yeah. they top. I mean, that would be awesome. I mean, Gren Maju getting second at a YCS and first at a YCS a couple weeks later, that was a huge 
huge deal, but they don't always do that. They don't always overperform yep. that much. So you want to make sure that they get featured at least at some point. You're going to have tons of meta matchups on day two. Day one, you should focus on fun decks. Yeah, it is. Or if you're the case of Jeff Jones, you kind of fill both slots because he's usually coming out with both creative decks and also topic as well. So but he's he's been a gem for being able to do feature matches because he fits the bill on both accounts. Yeah, that's always great when you have a, a named player who always plays unorthodox like decks. Yes. That's always really exciting. Yeah, and the only special thing about my Necros deck when you featured me was I, I was playing Gold Sarcophagus, and most other Necros decks weren't playing that card. But yeah. I thought that card was had a lot of good utility when it when it was out. I think it was only at one at that point in time, and I only played one anyway. Mm-hmm. But but again, like it's picking out feature matches can be like a really tough process because you have such a small time frame to be able to to get it all together. So for, so for those who were complaining about, like, why did you feature this, as you said before, well, again, you don't have a lot of time to figure it out, and things can change at the drop of a hat. Yeah, and there's so many interesting matchups, like, mm-hmm. between players and decks that are happening every single round. You're always bound to miss something cool that happened. I mean, it's just impossible. Like, that, like Yu-Gi-Oh! is very diverse. Even when it's like a one deck format, you see weird tech options at every single table usually, but you can't, you can only do so many feature matches per round. You can't feature everyone. Yeah. And I've always found that like throughout the start, we always try to feature like non-meta decks, like some or creative decks that like that are variants of meta decks that are around because you know we want to draw the reader in first of all, and, and even all the veterans as well. Like I'm sure no one wants to read uh, like a mirror match feature match for for 10 rounds yeah no that's pretty much how it goes and i think that the uh i don't know i know they didn't do them forever but i think they had just started or had had for like a little while the uh, the feature match request forms when i was writing and yep. i think that's very helpful letting people that maybe aren't named players or i mean named players can submit them too but letting people that maybe aren't so well known actually like write down hey i'm x1 with my skull servant deck and that's really exciting unless it's round two and you're oh one but if, if it's like yeah. round five or something it's like oh that's really cool maybe we can feature them where otherwise that person other than like someone like a, one of the writers accidentally hearing about that or seeing them while yeah. walking around they would just have yeah. no clue that that match was even happening mm-hmm. uh, definitely that too they make for really fun fun uh, like ways to like be able to type out that feature match too because you're looking at them like okay i got a whole new plethora of cards to work with now and like, I, I may not know them all but it's fun to at least type it down you know it's a refreshing change of pace to look at yeah 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 it's a little challenging sometimes from the yeah. perspective of the writer <laughs> if you're writing about a deck that you've uh, never seen in your entire life but uh yeah. that is what it is <laughs> yeah and, and i've seen a feature match that can that was not meta to come up with a crazy ending i think it was back on metagame.com. There was a there was a player actually playing Elemental Heroes, and he won because he top decked a Bubble Man, got the t- the two cards draw off it, and was able to make uh, Elemental Hero Mariner, which lets you attack oh directly if you have a set yeah, spell. Yeah, I remember that. I actually do remember with, that. Yeah, with, and you get to attack directly if you have a set spell or trap card. So you drew a spell or trap card, made Mariner, set it and attack for a game. And I thought that was one of the greatest feature matches ever to watch. Yeah, because of because of the sheer hilarity of it of the way that one and and the fact that you're doing like an elemental hero deck when that particular deck wasn't really meta. Right. No, that's always good. Yeah. And like, and sometimes you just stumble upon that, 
that hidden gem of a match that's just so fun. And then all of a sudden, like, uh, they could take it to the top. Like, for instance, when you see Jeff Jones, uh, I think it was one Toronto YCS, he took, he took like Earth. He took yeah, like Earth Psychics. Psychics. Yeah. The second uh, place. To second place, yeah. Only losing to Joshua Graham with windups, but he was running something that no one ever knew of, and he was running Grand Soil in there, and nobody knew how to play against it. Right, and it was such a treat to watch that kind of deck go. And then I think a couple, like a couple Niagara Falls ago, he was playing, he's playing Firewall Dragon OTK, FTK. Yeah, like and those, that was those... like, I mean, that was like a crazy thing too because. At that point, no one had ever heard of that deck. I mean, right. there were four people playing that of uh, that deck at that event. I think so. It had like an insane conversion rate. One of them got second. I, I think. Uh, I think that's what he got. But um, I mean, that deck after that, people knew about it and people were prepared for it. But I mean, it's kind of stupid because it's an FTK or an OTK or whatever. But it was still pretty yeah. exciting just from a deck building standpoint. How many weird cards it played, beginning of the end, all the Dark World cards, and it actually they they turned that into like a yeah, competitively yeah, so viable it's, deck, it's which so is pretty cool to watch. But you've also been on going back to that other side of the table again. You've also been in a couple of feature matches yourself during your Alter Geist run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially. I mean, I'm not really that important of a player, but I guess I'm sort of a named yeah. player by some metrics. So I'm not, I mean, they like featuring me when I'm about to, I know I've gotten a couple day two features, which always like, you're already nervous yep. about being in day two and having to win and then you get the feature. I think I've won two day two features and lost one of them. That was a pretty sad loss, but I guess I won both the Altergeist features. So that's what really matters. I think for, uh, yeah, for Portland, they had done, I think it, yeah, it was the last round of day two. So it was like whoever wins this match tops. And I believe that they had featured me for that. And that was like super nerve wracking. I think that was against Sky Strikers. But uh, man, that was just, yeah. it adds so much pressure. It adds a lot of pressure. And especially when I'm playing in feature matches, I'm trying to like play in a way that makes sense for the writer because yes. I know it's hard. So I'm maybe not as like focused on playing correctly, but uh yeah, it's a lot yeah, of stuff. I, I, I hope I was playing at a really good pace for you when I was playing against Joe Bogley in my feature match. Because, again, I've been on both sides of the table, so I was trying to declare everything for you so that way you would hear it and make sure that I was playing at, like, a reasonable pace for you to be able to type down everything. Because I know how far – I know how tough it gets to be yeah. able to type so much and then kind of lose it. And I'm like, okay, hold on. What just happened for a second? <laughs> yeah, I'm again, sure you were. I'm sure it was years fine. ago, though. So like, again, like you've you've done enough that maybe you just don't remember yeah. everything. I know that I don't remember every single feature match that I've written down. So it's every experience is different for sure. But uh, at the same time, I love being in feature matches. I don't know about you, but like, what what's your what's your take on them? Um. Yeah, I think it's it's fun. It is just like. I think it makes me think about the match in a different way because, which sometimes can be wrong, but I feel like people are pressured to make plays knowing that thousands, thousands of people are going to yeah. read those plays later on. So you like kind of double think about all the things that you're doing. Just like, is this going to look weird in the article? And uh, I think it's been a couple of cases where I've like made a play that I, I thought was wrong, but that yeah. people reading would think was right, which yeah. definitely is not what you should do. But uh, I mean, you just feel like obligated to, to, to try to make plays that people aren't going to make. Fun and, uh, of you know, you could also know? argue the, the other way, you know, maybe you some people get a little bit more laser focused because they understand, because if you're a feature match veteran, 
like you understand that you know they want you to declare your praise like you're forced to take it slow that so, so yeah in, in that sense it, it's like for instance uh like a really good player may be playing against like um like a not so good player, they may not take them as seriously. They might not try as hard. But when they know they're going against like a really quality player, then like they, they could like zero in and have like laser focus on them and like maybe bring out the best. But then again, it can also go either way as well. Some people can choke under that kind of thing. It, it re- it's really by a, by a case by case measure. But that's just how I am when I get my feature matches, or at least when I'm under pressure. Yeah, and I would say that I, I I haven't had a a video feature match yet. I, I never got a chance to do one of those, so that might actually be better because then you're not like you don't have to like play differently. I mean, you have to show when you draw cards or search cards, you have to show the judge so that they can input it into the yeah. the iPads that they have or whatever. But in general, like it might actually that might be like the superior way from a player's perspective because you're not so focused on like announcing every mm-hmm. card name to your opponent because they can just see it and you don't mm-hmm. have to say it for the article writer. So that might actually be better. Yeah, I, 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 Maybe I one get, to get one, of one of those either. And I'm hoping someday I, I can, but I haven't been uh, performing as well on the on the bigger circuit as of late. So uh, I can understand why I'm not getting picked yet. Hopefully, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's no events right now, so maybe when it comes gets back. back. Speaking can... of which, like, how have you been uh, going for Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, through this pandemic? Um, it's tough. I, I went. I've done some online locals. I did some online tournaments. Honestly, though, like playing online with simulators is Agreed. just not the same to me for some reason. Like, I made a video with my friend um, that was a Konami sponsored video for remote dueling where it was, like, my Lightsworn deck versus his Thunder Dragon deck, and that was honestly, like, some of the most fun that I've had with Yu-Gi-Oh! in the last, like, three months. Just, like, building the deck and playing with the physical cards just felt so different, and I just, I can't, I don't know why that is, but, yeah, I just, I can't play for extended periods of time on simulators. I just, and maybe it's because I I enjoy the interpersonal part of Yu-Gi-Oh! so much, meeting new people, playing against people at events, you know. I always have such a fun time playing against people. I always try to make sure that both players, no matter who wins or loses, like, have a good time in the match. You know, if I win, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I I stacked it with the the floodgate or whatever, and if they win, it's, oh, have a good time. Um, I think everyone gets caught up in the moment, but in general, I think that most people that have played me at events know that I like just kind of having a good time, even when I am, like, trying to top the event I mean, you're always trying to top the event, but I think it's just more important than anything that just have fun when you're playing. I know that sounds silly from the, the <laughs> meta sheep DZ or whatever, but uh, I think just having a good time when you're playing Yu-Gi-Oh! is, is really important. And, um, you know, there's a time and a place. Obviously, when I'm in, like, the top cut of an event, I'm not going to take it. Um, or I'm going to take it a little bit more seriously. I'm not going to take it as, like, jokingly. I'm not just going to joke around my opponents as much. But even in top cut, I think having some good banter with yeah. your opponent and building a rapport is always going to be, like, one of the best parts about Yu-Gi-Oh! for me. I've made so many of my best friends from Absolutely, and I agree with really you cool. wholeheartedly on that because I'm, I'm very extroverted myself, so I love interacting with people. I love talking to them. I'm like Daniel Negreanu of, like, poker. I like to talk with my opponent. I like to have some fun with them, even outside of the game, even, while, even though we're playing a game. I still like to have fun with them. And then I've made, again, I've made so many friends just playing this game, and, and thankfully I did because those friends would end up 
would be my my road trip buddies for for YCSs or back then like a Shonen, Shonen Jump Championships. So if I hadn't have uh, like you know talked to these kind yeah. of people and like be friends with them, like I wouldn't have gone to as many events as I was able to beforehand. So I definitely think that's a big thing too. And you have to be able to separate like the because someone has I mean not always but someone usually has yes. to win the match yeah. and someone's going to lose and you have to know that ahead of time I think it's really important especially when I play against people that I'm not friends with and they just like crushed me at a YCS you have to be able to say even if it like knocked you out of like top 32 even if it knocked you out of like winning the event you have to be able to say okay yeah. that's part of the game now let's talk after the match and have like some good fun. I know that I played against one of my friends at uh, the 3v3 Vegas and he was playing Altergeist and he just had way more cards that he had available to beat yep. the mirror match. And I totally didn't. And like, he, uh, he beat me in a really fun like match. And we, I think I had gotten a game off of him and, uh, you know, after that, we were still just having a good conversation. We were still friends and stuff. It's really important to separate what happens in the game from like your actual friendships because someone usually has to win or lose. And uh, unless your opponent like that you thought was your friend, yeah. like shark to you, I guess maybe that would change things. But other than that, if you're both just playing the game, if you both made metagame reads, if one of you won the, the coin toss and got to go first and built a huge board. Yeah. You know, and I just, try not to let like, games like get in the way of my friendships that I have with friends. I mean, I had this back in the day, um, if, if people remember this, uh, like back when Upper Upper Deck Entertainment was had that little tiff with Konami, and then they held this event called Upper Deck Day, um, which was kind of like a glorified regional, but with like a ton more prizes because they were giving away prize cards as as prizes at that point in time. Um, I had this local friend who I perennially beat every single time. I beat him, but we actually faced each other in top eight, and he beat me. Like he beat me cleanly. Like I'm not, I, and the, but still like, I'm not going to let our friendship get in the way. And I had one friend where in a regional where we were both XO in the last round. And, and again, like we're not, not going to let friendships mm. get in the way of us. Like, yeah, it's a competition. Like we, it's all competition. Like everybody understands that. That that's what it is. Like it's a competition. Yeah. Versus, like, and there are going to be points where you're going to have to go against your friends. I've gone against my own best friend and teammate at one regional and he knocked me out of the tournament. Actually. Yeah, I think everyone knows like a story where, or maybe experienced, I know I have, where it's like, you go to a regional, there's 500 people, round one, you play against Ugh. someone from your locals, and it's yeah. like, <laughs> or someone in your car, and it's like, how does that happen? But, you know, it's just, it's, it's part of the game. Yeah, no, yeah but that makes th sense. Th that's just the way it is, and, you know, I, I honestly hate having to go against local friends when I'm at, like, bigger events. Even though if I know that I can beat them, I probably beat them, I don't want to do that because I want to play somebody new. Yeah, I mean that's like yeah, that's like the appeal, right? I think people, when you only play at your locals for so much, and you like get used to everyone's, like you know what deck they're playing, you know what tech options they play. There's not so as you play more and more, there's not as much of a surprise factor. So playing new people at tournaments, I mean that's like so much fun. You have no clue what they're playing, you have no clue how they play, you have no clue any of that stuff, and you have to come up with all, all these answers while you're. In the and duel. I think that's also I think that's really, really good for like a, a duelist like evolution and development as well, is that they're that being able to play in an unfamiliar environment also helps them be able to adapt, especially when you play like different rogue matches as well. I think that also really helps to it that you can adapt. Like you have to play completely out of your strategy to, to, to beat your opponent. Like if you play against like a floodgate deck, you can't play the same way, especially if they go first, you've got to go completely different. Right. 
no that is also i mean that's just so exciting because anyone can come up with any sort of deck from like whatever inspiration that they have you it might not be popular but i mean you can still at tournaments play against like inspector border barrier statue stun and, and the types of things that you need to yeah. have to beat those types of decks is going to be a different tool set than your regular matchup but maybe if you've never played against the deck before it's like a totally new thing and it's like okay i have to think about the game in a, a very different way because i'm just trying to play around floodgates now so what do i commit to the board or i not commit to the board Maybe not the best example because that deck is kind of like a boring floodgate deck. But I don't know. I'm just thinking back to uh, in Portland, I played against. Uh, I had taken pretty much all of the like control deck side deck cards out of my deck because yep. no one was playing control at the UDS. And then I played against like a true Draco player, and I had to like come up with some ways to beat him without using like the regular like heavy yep. storm duster type cards. And then I played against uh, an actual like border stun banisher <laughs> radiance anti meta deck, and I had to. Have this whole, whole new way of thinking about things like how do i beat this deck without the regular cards that people use yep. to play against these types and, of strategies i remember my last regionals i had to play against uh, like a border stun pl player and i was playing orcast and i think in the final m game of our match i didn't use a single orcast effect at all and i won because i yeah the grind you have to learn how to grind at that point. So I wasn't just freely throwing away my Harpoors into the grave. The Harpoors have, like, the biggest attack out of out of the trio. So, like, you want to try to abuse that as much as possible, like, when, you're in, when you have an opening. And th those games get whittled down, but I yeah. feel extra satisfaction being able to beat those kinds of decks because those decks were meant to take me out. And... Yeah, I think that Jeff Jones always would talk about... Maybe not always, but I feel like he said before that while playing chain burn doesn't like make you a good player playing against chain burn, like really proves like how much you can adapt to like weird situations because that deck just like plays so differently yes. than any deck in Yu-Gi-Oh! And like, if you commit too much to the board, they just burn you with like just desserts and stuff like that or secret barrel. So you really have to go about it in like a totally different way. Um, I think there was at the, the world championship for 2012, <laughs> yeah, whenever yeah, Jarell Winston Zodia. went, uh, his opponent would, was uh, summoning monsters and then using solemn warning on his own monsters, just so that Jarell couldn't draw as many yeah. cards off of hope for escape. Once again, something that would like never come up in any other situation. Like why would you ever yeah. warning your own monsters? But because he was purposely trying to lose life points so that he couldn't get as many draws from uh, or Jarell couldn't get as many draws from his trap card. It's like that's just like a very out of the yeah. box way of thinking about yeah, things. Yeah, and like every worked. time when I play against Chainburn, I try my best not to put Chainlink One on the board because that's how they feed. Yeah, because that's how they get their chain strengths yeah. uh, to be more effective. That's how they get faster access to accumulated fortune. You want to try to limit as many like chain link want activations as much as possible. Usually I just try to go like summon and just try to like swing lightly with not my strongest monster, but with my, my light monster. Like you have to be very patient with the with chain burn decks and like know when to like when to go extend and when not to, and when to hold back. And the, you gotta have a lot of restraint playing those kinds of decks. Yeah, at least they're not around too much anymore. No, you don't. <laughs> no one really plays those so decks. much uh, negation now. First turn negations nowadays that uh, chain burden decks really don't have uh, much of a place anymore. But when you play against those kinds of decks, like you really have to 
really pinpoint a, a big weakness in them. Like when you play floodgate decks, like of course there are weaknesses like spell and trap removal. And they try to address that with, you know, like something like starlight road or whatnot or, or whatever they have to do. But you really have to like, ex- like exploit yeah. weaknesses and really learn how to grind in these games. And I I really think that doing that part of the game is what really sets like the, like the good players from the elite players. Yeah. But again, like, again, I just, it's so satisfying when I get to beat those kinds of decks because I often don't play those kinds of decks, but maybe if I play like on the video game or something, I'll play with the, like the fun, like lockdown decks just for the heck of it, just to see how they work and at least learn their weaknesses and whatnot. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean that's that's true. I think for a while, like True Draco was like the modern equivalent of that, where it's like their deck just played so differently than everyone else, and you had to like really do yeah. things in a certain way to beat them. And like sometimes you just it, it didn't work out, but a lot of times, like if you played smart, you could actually beat. Like, yeah, the and the True Draco, I find, is always a, a, a tricky matchup again because they always like to open up with so many floodgates, and they can open up with like Demise Diagram, which is like I hate that. I hate seeing that because it's so painful. <laughs> Yeah, well, at least Demise is at one right now, and Diagram is at one too, so they never open those. Yeah, exactly that. But again, like, but when you see it happen, like when Demise was at three and Diagram was at three, it's like oh, you kind of roll your eyes a little bit. It's like, oh man, this is what I have to like contend with and go through. But uh, but when you beat them, it's so satisfying, especially when you can get off or a lightning storm in that sense. Yeah, no, those cards are yeah, great and you know, it's, like it's amazing how we start to see a lot of like power cards, like previous power cards, like just have no power, just not being used anymore. Like Regeki, for instance, who would have thought that we would have Regeki at one and no one would be using it. Yeah. Dark holes at three. I'm like, I, I always forget that. Like I thought it was yeah. at like two or one or something, but yeah, Regeki could pro I think it could be at three and no one would play it. Like it's just, I don't know why. Why would you like when you could just play Dark Ruler No More or Lightning Storm, which is basically Regeki, but also it's a uh, Harpy's yeah, exactly that because be. again, like Dark Ruler No More has like a different utility where like it can't be negated by or can't be responded to by monster effects, and we and it does like a lesser impact than what Regeki does. But we have a format where we get so many of monster effects, like when they hit the graveyard, it's like we don't want it to go there yet. Like, yeah, and I think that like it's cool having. I think one of the things that's very important for a game like Yu-Gi-Oh! that doesn't have set rotation is to have different options that do similar things, but they're not the same. So, for example, uh, Dark Luna yeah. More and Forbidden Droplet, they're both pretty similar, but not exactly. Like, Forbidden Droplet does have the downside where you have to discard cards, and that can be kind of tricky, but it also has the upside that it's a quick play spell, which is cool, and also you can... Um, it's it's you can actually do damage and it, it has mm-hmm. the attacks of the opponent's monsters. So I think having two cards or more than two cards that are similar but different enough is always like good. I mean, back in the day, it was Venus Chain yep. versus Breakthrough Skill. You know, Venus Chain was more susceptible to backer removal, but it also stopped the opponent from attacking. So that's pretty good. But I think giving players, you know, like a couple different options and saying, okay, here's some ways that you can stop a monster effect. Here's some ways that you can break boards, but they're all a little bit different. So you have to actually look at the metagame, say, what do I want? And look at your own deck and say, what do I want? I think that's like what makes deck building so 
much fun in Yu-Gi-Oh. Like, especially right now when I'm trying to build side decks, it's always like, okay, there's a lot of cards that do similar things like Lightning Storm and Evenly Matched and Cosmic Cyclone and now Forbidden Droplet. But, uh, you know, which ones do I want to play? Like, which which board-breaking cards, which going mm-hmm. second cards do I want? What makes sense for my deck? What makes sense for the metagame? I think that's like... It's hard, but it adds like a, a dynamic to deck building that I always. And we're starting really to see like a bit of an deal. evolution in like how these like board wipe removal cards are, are coming about. Like for example, evenly matched when that first card came out. When that card came out, everyone was like kind of gasping. It's like, oh my god, this is going to kind of change the game when it goes to going second because you can just wipe out an opponent's board practically with just one card and then continue continue unfettered on your own. And then we get lightning storm, which is again the combination of duster and regeki. But again, it has that restriction where you can only activate it if you don't have any cards on your field. So it's just kind of funny how like, yeah, I mean, both those cards are like uh, a good example of how like you have to put them in your deck knowing that if you draw them after turn one, they're probably unusable or at least difficult to use. And I think that does add like a a really interesting dynamic to the game where something, um, I mean, even like, I mean, Lightning Storm apparently won out because the game is so like turn one focused, but even something like Twin Twisters, like actually a lot of people were still thinking about playing Twin Twisters when Lightning Storm was legal, just because it's more flexible when you draw it after turn one. And that does happen, but I guess Lightning Storm's power level was just so high that it's really matter. Yeah, and that's definitely an important factor because I've also seen like side decking has been completely different now. You barely see a lot of outside of floodgates you barely see a lot of traps get sided in for for like for when you're going second you usually yeah. only want to side them in when you're going first and you typically side out traps if you know you're going second because you need to make sure that your opening hand that every single card is playable and can be contributed immediately and we're starting to see that as like as an evolution of the game like every card's got to be like ready now it's got it can't be like a couple turns down the road because the game's yeah. already over at that point in time yeah, and we've seen that. I can't think of any like a a bunch of great examples right now, but there certainly are examples of cards that are. I mean, like BLS going to three is like an example of a card that is clearly powerful yeah. even by modern standards, but it doesn't do anything turn one when you're going first, which is what you want to be yeah. doing. So people just don't play it. Dark Arm Dragon, another example where it went to three after the longest time, zero people are playing it. Although I I remain that if um if we were back in uh twenty. 18 with that that burning abyss deck that you were talking about with hydrolander that deck actually did play dark arm dragon at one copy so i think it would probably play maybe three of them maybe two of them i don't really know but that deck had i mean that was different right you had graveyard manipulation from the fairy tale snow yep. to get down to three dark monsters then you could pop it on entire board but so dark armed and bls i mean they still get played occasionally but they're not like I mean, if you would have told someone from 2010 that BLS and Dark Armed would be at three and no yeah. one would even consider really playing them in most decks, they would just like not believe you probably being possible. And Dark Holes. Yeah, because we're starting to see like <laughs> ban lists now start to open up these cards that were once at like one for the longest time, open them at three, and then no one's even playing it at three. It's It's so weird just kind of being there from the start and seeing the game kind of evolve in that way where like these power cards are... Like, we don't care if they're at three or not. No one's going to be really using them right now. Yeah, it seems like the main cards that are still banned are either generic starter cards that are way too powerful, like Pot of Greed, yeah. Graceful, Painful Choice, stuff like that. Cards that work with degenerate, like, combos, like uh, Mind Master yeah. and Fishboard Blaster and Mass Driver. Or cards that are just, like, 
inherently like flawed things like uh like vanity's mm-hmm. emptiness or royal oppression stuff that's like way too individually powerful and like all the rest of the stuff all like the board breaking cards yeah. it seems like at least for monsters they just like don't really care about in a lot of the cards they brought off the ban list that had like effects that maybe back in the day were above average and power level but nowadays just no one like cares about those things are slowly yeah, coming and off we've the also list seen like cards on. that have some kind of variant to old ban cards like for example when we see pot of greed draw two of course that's going to help almost every single deck and then we look at like a scratch scratch you're engaged it's kind of a variant of it in the sense that you're going to you're going to gain two cards off it uh, assuming you have three spells in your game and it's kind of funny how yeah. like for the longest time like we had engaged at three for a while and then finally got cut down and, and then now it's like outright gone but it's funny how we get these like these variant cards yeah. that have the kind of like the same power creep just last in our meta for a little bit until konami realizes okay we gotta we've got to axe it or else it's gonna get even more out of hand yeah because it's not like plus ones can't exist in Yu-Gi-Oh. I mean, you can have plus ones. There are lots of plus ones and yeah. plus twos and plus three in Yu-Gi-Oh. But the thing with Pot of Greed is that it was always, it's the only plus one that you can play in every deck that has no downside or setup or cost or anything. It's just a, a guaranteed plus one every single time you play it in any deck where something like Engage, while it is extremely powerful and in decks that are playing it, is maybe arguably better than Pot of Greed. It wasn't to the same level of like everyone was playing engage obviously a lot yeah. of people were playing engage and it was a very popular engine and a very popular deck but it wasn't to the level that pot of greed has achieved where like every single deck every single player would play pot of greed right now um i did find though that it is like an interesting debate when you play traditional because yeah. i was going to play in a traditional tournament and decks that are playing pot of extravagance okay is it better to have three pot of extravagance or is it better to have one pot of greed and one graceful charity or is it better to put all of them in the same deck like with pot of extravagance restricting you from drawing for the rest of the turn i mean it's like it is like a debate i never thought i'd debate playing pot of greed but because they made a card that obviously is supposed to be used in advanced format where pot of greed doesn't exist it is it doesn't matter as much when you're playing traditional it is kind of like a debate i didn't actually see what the guru decks that were being played yep. at a uh, Farfus traditional tournament, if they actually played extravagance and pot of greed and gristle charity, but I would be interested in looking at yeah, what and, they decided you know, to we go don't with. really see examples of being able to integrate like the traditional format. Cause we don't really see a whole lot of it. So being able to put like pot of greed together with extravagance, like now what do you, what do you do? Like, do you really want to do that? It, it almost sounds like a no brainer when you first think of it, but kind of integrating these two cards together, like you have like pot of greed, which is like the, the quintessential, draw card and then we've had to make like so many different variants of that card that are like kind of as powerful but they have some sort of restriction on it and then kind of incorporate them together it it just gets so weird and you have discussions about like card combinations that you never thought you would ever have to have before and it's a completely different ball of wax having to deal with this Right. And when I was uh, deck building for that tournament, even though like I, I actually dropped from the tournament because I was so overwhelmed with choice, like I was trying to build Orcus and it was difficult finding space for five different variants of Orcus yeah. all in the extra deck. Like there's so many different band cards. There's so many cards. And I think that the deck was successful in that tournament because it was it, it could take advantage of like so many different band cards. But yeah, whenever I try to play traditional tournament, I just get way too overwhelmed with like 
choice. Like there's so many powerful cards, so many FTKs, so many, not even FTKs, just like so many good cards individually and in combination with other cards that it's really hard to uh, deck build. It's And people say that about like modern Yu-Gi-Oh! They're like, oh, you have to play three Ash in every deck. Yeah. It's so much worse than old school Yu-Gi-Oh! But man, you build those traditional decks and like, 20 cards out of your deck are guaranteed yeah. when you build your deck and it's like okay good luck finding an archetype to fit yeah in with that's the other kind of the curse spots. of when you have too many choices because you don't know what to pick as as, as if being like told what to play or having very few choices because a decision between two different decks rather than like 100 different decks and that <laughs> yeah and i know that konami has written in an official article that uh like one of the reasons that the ban list originally was important was because they found that there was like 23 to 25 cards that were being included in every single deck list, like yeah. all the really powerful old school cards. And they said that like, it just takes away from deck building. Like you're not really deck building. You're making like 40% of the deck. Everything else yeah, is like and already that's, that's set kind of stone. like what uh, we saw at the tail end of, of sky strikers before engage finally got the axe like majority of decks would incorporate some kind yeah. of sky striker engine just to just, just to abuse it because engage was so good at the time and you didn't have to play every single sky striker card you didn't even have to have a sky striker monster in your deck just to just to have a drink yeah i mean like pure sky strikers you see true draco sky strikers you see orca sky strikers you see warrior sky strikers like engage was just so powerful which is why it had to be banned and yeah i, I always found it weird that it didn't get uh banned as as soon as i thought it was because of how powerful that card is and even just getting off one engage and getting that extra draw can absolutely turn the tide of an entire match in my yeah, I really thought it was going to be like Nakaz Labrionic. I thought they were going to put it to semi-limited, and it still would have been really powerful. Yeah. It still would have done like a lot of damage, but uh, maybe not as overpowered at semi-limited. Like I, I, I swear, I thought it was going to be semi-limited. Yeah. Like, the very first ban list, like just Nakaz Labrionic. I kind of have this uh, criticism with Konami that they don't really restrict their cards right off the bat when they come out. I mean, I remember Upper Deck used to at least do that with with certain cards. I think, like for example, Vampire Lord back in the day, believe it or not, was actually a very powerful card. And I believe they semi-restricted it right off the bat. Uh, Macura to the Strucker, that, that card's been banned like, for so long, but that got banned within the first week. Like, Upper Deck had some foresight. Konami, we're seeing it, okay, once it's released, no matter what the power creep is on that card, we're going to keep it at three until we actually see that the meta is starting to like, kind of deteriorate a little bit because of that card, and then finally fix it after X amount of formats. Well, it's because, like, half the player base is, like, that, which I think is where I am, which is, like, you know, they should hit stuff, like, earlier so that, like, the yeah. format doesn't get, like, too bad. But the other half of the player base says, like, I mean, you see complaints all over the place. They're not hard to find where it says, oh, I don't play Yu-Gi-Oh! because I buy a $1,000 yeah. deck and then they ban it two weeks later. And it's like, no, they really don't. But so Konami's trying to appease both audiences, and I think it's very difficult. I mean, if you remember at the end i don't even know what ban list that was whatever ban list that yep. engage got banned on that ban list you had like engage banned you had colossus banned you mm -hmm. had mirage Stelio banned you had a heart banned and like those are like the four top decks that for like literal years people were yep. saying please hit these we want more decks and then like as soon as that happened people were like yay and then like a month later people were like man i hate these new decks why aren't they restricted enough and it's i don't know it's it's weird i think it's I think Konami has the impossible job. I think all card game companies have the impossible job of banning mm -hmm. cards and appeasing everyone because you're always going to have people that are not satisfied and, and with what you chose. Absolutely true. I mean, you, there's such a 
delicate balance that it's really difficult to to iron it out. And you know that you're not going to make everybody happy with every single ban list that happens. I mean, the last one we had, like, we had no cards banned. And people were criticizing because there were very few changes that happened to it. It was just a couple cards going to three, and that was about it uh, for the most part. So you're not going to piece yeah. everybody in every single ban list, which, right. which I understand. And uh, this is, and I'm not trying to bash Konami when I say this, but another possible reason why they have is because like they want to be able to like sell their product when like these new cards come out. Well, they're business, so yeah. I mean, that's like what it, like anytime someone says like, oh, Konami like only cares about the profits. It's like, well, they are. I mean, they're they're a business. Like that, they have to. If if people aren't buying cards, like there's no Yu-Gi-Oh for the rest of us to play. I think that where this really came into like a lot of people's like new, looking at it in a new way was yeah. this last ban list where they mm-hmm. just unrestricted three cards and it's like there aren't any events going on so even for like online players while it mm-hmm. sucks having to deal with the format like as a company you can't just i mean you could but like how would people feel if they spent all this money to build the Eldritch? they spent hundreds of dollars on their golden lords they haven't gotten a chance to play it at any events and now it's like banned before events start up again i think we are reaching i mean that's like no discussion on a day but i think we are reaching like a a critical mass of cards that shouldn't have existed at the same time because they probably would have been hit like i don't think that healthy fireback plus numeron plus dragoon were all supposed mm-hmm. to exist at the same time but because everything is canceled right now i mean they are going to exist at the same i mean who really knows what would have happened but those cards i feel like there's so many like powerful one card starters or two card combos where you just like with one card, if your opponent doesn't have an yes. out to it, they just can't play the game. And it's like, I don't know if they were all supposed to exist yeah. at the same time. And the couple really things I that. want to touch on that is um, for, for one, uh, there have been formats where you can like ride a deck for, you know, several months or, or a year, like sky strikers, for example, like you could have just rode that, that train for a long time. Cause strike strikers were so prevalent yeah. at that point in time. So you could really run on it. But there's also like the uh, the other side of it where Konami's also made it where you've you kind of have to invest in like the newest deck to be able to keep up at a, at a competitive basis, which is which shouldn't be that big a deal because you know that's how that's how the game is. That's just the nature of of what card games are, at least trading card games are anyway. So you yeah. can play both sides, but again, but they've put formats where you can ride a deck for so long. Like Burning Abyss, I think, is probably one of the best examples that you could have. You just have to invest a little bit of card here and there. Like, you have to have some sort of expectancy to invest in some new cards to add your deck. Let's say I like it when they add, like, one new indirect or direct piece of legacy support to an old deck, and then that deck is, like, suddenly viable yeah. at, like, a rogue level. Because I think that, like, I don't know. I mean, there's like all different levels of it, but I think that I like it when decks can get like their invite at a regional, you know, that's like for a lot of people that that actually is like a pretty big achievement when you're like a newer player, like trying to get that first invite. I know it's really, really tough. I know a lot of people that watch me like have said that they like watch started watching the videos to try to get that first invite and then they were able to. And it's like, I just like it when decks are able to do that. I know too. A lot of competitive players, that's not that big a deal. But I know for a lot of casual players or newly competitive players, that's like the first big hurdle. I mean, like making like topping a regional or topping a YCS, those are like still out of reach. Like that's for like the the expert players and the elite players. But for a lot of players, it's like, oh, maybe I can get my invite. And I think that 
when a variety of decks can get their invite, which we've seen in the past, I think that's like how you know it's it's good. Like maybe you can't like win a YCS mm-hmm. with your like random deck, but maybe you can get your invite and go to Nats and stuff and go O three and eat pizza. But yeah, I mean that's just I think yeah, that's like I, part I, of the joy of the video. case that we can get one card that comes out and it completely puts like a former deck like over the top. Like for example, when we got Magician Souls, all of a sudden Spirals became one of the best decks because Master Plan fit the bill of being able to get to get dumped to the graveyard for magician souls and then not to mention you can dump like your rescues and your assaults to the grave and and fuel off it and it's it's funny how magician souls was meant for dark magician but it was better suited for spirals than it was for dark magicians themselves <laughs> yeah but like you said just that one card was able to take them from nothing to a competitively viable deck like once again after for years just not being like yeah in competition it, it, it's at kind all. of funny just seeing that happen because we know that spirals we've we've seen them at like being one of the best decks of the game we see them get nerfed and all of a sudden magician souls makes it one of the best decks again and i took complete advantage of that i won an ots championship before the pandemic happened i was like it was like a week or two before it happened and i think i was the only one i don't know how running spirals at that ots championship i'm like well gosh i'm like i better win this now or else i'm gonna look kind of silly and foolish that I took like the one of the best things on the game yeah. and, and not win with it. Thankfully I did. So I was able to cover my own ground, but it, it's just kind of funny to see like these, these indirect cards or anything like that, just all of a sudden make one deck, just the one of the best decks, or at least incredibly viable again. Right. Yeah, but it, no, I, I feel you. There. I don't know. It, maybe it's just me being kind of nostalgic because I've been in this game since like 2003 but I do enjoy seeing some of the old decks that all of a sudden get a rehash and, and come back. And it, it gives me this moment of nostalgia that I'm thinking, oh, it brings me back to the old days where I get to have like maybe 10 turn games. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's weird for me because like, I know the game has been speeding up, but like as someone that has played Ultra Grace for so long, my games usually do go pretty long, actually, yeah. like a lot of turns at least. Like, I know conceptually that, like, most matchups aren't like that. But for me, like, I really, like, my games usually do go, like, <laughs> to 10 turns. Or at least did, like, when I was playing Altergeist and stuff. So it's uh, it's weird to think about that. I know that that's not really what's happening yeah. for the vast majority of players. But for me, it's always been. Because people would, like, come out of matches with me and say, like, man, you know, it was really fun just to, like, play a lot of turns of Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, a lot of back and forth. And I'm thinking, well, I do that every match. I don't know what you're talking about, but... I mean, my deck really doesn't have a turn one board; it just sets trap yeah. mod, trap trap cards. I really like enjoy that. playing a lot of a yeah. uh, lot of like older formats. Like I play goat format, and one of my local friends made these two like really caveman decks. Like they're they're almost like demo decks, but slightly more improved in a sense that there's a little bit more to play with. And I love playing with those decks because I love grinding those like ten turn, fifteen turn games, and it really kind of keeps it keeps me fresh. Yeah, I think in being able to play the grind game because I think that's again going back to this whole start of this conversation, I think that's a very important factor and a skill that what kind of separates the, the good players from the elite players is that being able to grind and, and play for more than just three turns. Right. No, I think that's where, like, the, the true fun of Yu-Gi-Oh! is when it's lots of back and forth. No matter who wins, I think it's just fun to have, like, a lot of cool interactions, a lot of surprise activations. I mean, people love trap cards just because, like, you don't know what they are until they, they get flipped up. But I think that the matches where, like, every single game is back and forth and you both get to, like, mm-hmm. see both of your strategies and see both of your decks and what they can do, I think it's always, like, some of the more yeah, fun Yeah, and that's a big reason why I don't play 
the Pokemon trading card game and why I love Yu-Gi-Oh so much is all the back and forth that you're able to do with your opponent. Like, I want to be completely invested into the game. I don't want to just wait for my turn to go and then I can actually do something. I want to be able to do something, like, the entire way through. And I think that was one of the big reasons why Yu-Gi-Oh has gotten so successful is the, is the player interaction that you're able to do in such a trading card game because we've had uh, Magic for so long, even though there is interaction with it, but Pokemon, which was also been around for so long, you don't have that interaction. And Yu-Gi-Oh just really brought that to another level, in my mind. But I, yeah, I, I no, definitely I love these. I still love this game, even though that there's a lot less interaction that we see a lot of like people do these first turn boards. But at least when nowadays, when I see people build these first turn boards, I can look at my hand and say, all right, this is what they're probably going to end on. And this is going to be my plan to try to draw, to try to grind my way through it at least because. Yeah. I think that like the Megaton promos from last year were like a huge deal for that. I think Dark Little More and Nibiru are like excellent cards. Like I think that's great design. Like having these cards are like, are so anti-combo, but also like with Nibiru, it's not like Max C because the problem with Max C, I mean, I know a lot of people want it back in the game, but one of the problems with Max C from a design standpoint is that, if you go first and make a big board, it just makes it even more difficult for your opponent to break that board. Where with like Nibiru, if you want to stop them from making a board and you went first, well, you have to lose your board as well. Like it's not something that you can really use going first and just keep your board up and whatever. And like Darker Little More, it's like, okay, we'll stun all their monster effects, but if they have spells and traps, we're not going to stop those, which means like they have to have a pretty much just monster effect board, but also like, hey, you have to break it yourself and we're not going to like let you do any damage. So I think cards like those are really good. And I really do hope, I mean, we have no information on them, but there are world premiere cards in the mega, the, the yeah. 2020 Megatons, I think. I think that there's three new ones or something. So hopefully those are on like the same level of, I mean, Dimension Shifter is pretty cool too, but. I just really hope. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's any information. No, it just says world premiere. Yeah, three brand new world premiere cards. No information. So uh, hopefully they're good, though. I think people. Hopefully they're not as bad as the. Uh, what's that? Yeah. Was that? Oh, dual overload yes. had a couple new cards, and uh, those ones didn't really do anything. But uh, maybe this will be like somewhere. I did between. like the balance of Dark Ruler no more, and the fact that you can't just like battle damage. So like when you're getting close to time, you can't just you know sit back, let them do the thing, and just play it, and then attack for. You have to to do it if you've got it in your hand like you go okay, i can't use be discard fodder and and also another th- yeah same thing yeah. with evenly match too you, you can't uh evenly match them and attack them so they're board breaking cards yeah, but they don't it, let you exactly like, that. And i, I kind of like those restrictions where like okay my opponent's got this card then that means like i'm screwed for time because i because i feel like that's kind of a kind of a cheap way to win in other words yeah that, that's what it is yeah Right. Yeah. Winning in time is always like it, it, it a, is a, a tricky complete, thing. It's a completely different skill set as well because you have to kind of strategically scoop because you want to allot yourself maybe enough time to maybe get a turnoff or let your opponents uh, eat up as much time as possible when, when you make them go first and give yourself enough time to just be able to do your turn, get an attack in and score some life point damage before the time runs out. I mean, that's starting to become a skill in itself. And like I've seen Gabriel Vargas yeah. at a regional uh, look at the he won game one. He looked at the time, didn't want his opponent to to make him go first. So what he said was, "I'm going to give you the win," and for game two, and then go right, yeah, yeah and then went two right in game three, made two. his yep. opponent go first, ate up enough time, and then beat him on his subsequent turn. I mean, that's starting to become like 
strategy in itself too, which is I find is kind of fascinating. I don't like it in this. I don't like the concept of it, but it's a skill that you're going to have to learn now because of the new time rules. Yeah. I mean, the reality is as much as it sucks, like there time is finite. Like, like you can't sit there all day. Like there has to be a time limit yeah. for games like this that are played in person. So it's like, I wish that the time rule was changed. I wish it was like either, even if it wasn't like the old five yes. turns, even if it was just like three turns, or even if it's like finish out your turn, anything but phase. Phase just, I, I would imagine the next policy doc, I don't know. Economy's kind of weird about changing stuff like that, but I would imagine in the next like 10 years here, it'll get changed to something else, hopefully. But uh, this yeah, is like a I, new I thing that would be out. okay with if it was uh, maybe give your, the opponent one more turn. Just maybe one, but I yeah, I definitely don't agree with the whole phase thing. But again, I have my own little conspiracy theory about it. Yeah. I I think most of it's because uh, one, it saves on time, so that way the judging staff doesn't have to like be around as much. And number two, not to mention with the whole fiasco that happened with Wizards of the Coast and the judging, they want to be treated as uh, like actual employees and be paid money. And Konami decided to follow that same way as well. It's also another way to save money because we're putting the because now our judges are being paid by the hour. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, that's, no, hard my, to that's say. speculation, but obviously I don't have any real evidence behind that. But, you know, that possibility is still there. It's hard to ignore. But again, like I, no evidence right. on it. This is just my own personal speculation on the matter. But it's funny how you, you have to play the game completely different again because of the new time rules. Yeah, no, there was one time when I saw kind of what you're describing where like a friend of mine was like in the last round for getting his invite yeah. and he had won game one. And he like was losing game two, and then yeah. he like just didn't scoop, and then like it, time got called, and his opponent won game two, and it's like, well, it's a draw. I mean, it's it's over now. So it's like you really do have to be playing. I know a couple of my friends that just never look at the clock, yeah. never are paying attention to it, and they yeah. constantly go into time and lose in time. And it's like you really do got to really focus on the clock. Yeah, it's another new it. skill that duelists have to learn uh, if they want to make it in the big times, because you know time has become. Uh, more of a factor than ever in this game and I know people are complaining about it uh, even myself I do but you, you have to adapt you got to learn about it and some people f- seem to forget that that's a new skill that they have to adapt as well <laughs> yeah all right Doug well we're approaching our time man uh, I had a great conversation with you man we just, <laughs> this is pretty long this is probably the longest yeah, podcast sure. I'll be putting out here we're going on about two hours which hey I'm not going to complain about but I had a lot of fun absolutely yeah, yeah for sure there, thanks uh, for having any, me on uh, shout outs that you want to give out to anybody before we uh, take off no no just thanks for having me i mean i guess thanks to uh sam for uh, i asked him about what, what how his experience was he said yeah, he had a good time so I was like, okay, I, i'll do I it i love that guy man and I, I know i mention this all the time but he and i uh went to uh Bo Tang's wedding together and we just ate so much hors d'oeuvres together we were at the same table we drank a whole bunch man sam's a hoot to be around in person yeah, he but he's is, a, he's a partier. Will, he's fun. I will confirm that whatever personality he has online, that's him in real life. And I love I love that he's legit. Yep. Yeah, he's exactly. Full of it. So big shout out again to Sam. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did a little bit of research on your end to uh, see what was going on with my podcast before you came on. Yeah, no, it was it was fun. I mean, I get a lot of requests and stuff. So it's yeah, not, not that I'm not that popular, but I mean, certainly people always are asking bigger channels to do stuff, but I really, I really like your appreciate style. You so I want to come on. on. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. I'm hoping this will get big eventually, but you know, 
you know, you gotta, I gotta put in the effort and, you know, only time will tell if it gets big, but I'm hoping so. I mean, I've got a gimmick that no one else has. I'm the only journalist that actually runs a podcast. So a Yu-Gi-Oh podcast, brother. Yeah. You gotta start somewhere. So I think you're a good track. You're listening out there. This is Doug Zeef. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel. D Zeef spelled D Z E E F F. He's also on Twitter by the same name. And don't forget to check out his articles on tcplayer.com. And just uh, just a note, I'm actually in talks with Jason right now to get this podcast affiliated with TCG Player. So you could be seeing me on there very soon. Don't forget to like and subscribe for more information. Check out the Gate Expectations podcast on YouTube, Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Spotify. Mm-hmm.